Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind to rule the world as his vice regent. And so he was made in the image and the likeness of God. Adam was the first king of the world, and he was to be that perfect representative of God on earth, but he failed in his charge. And so sin entered the world. The kingdom failed. But it was all under God's sovereign plan. As we saw sin get worse and worse, it was manifested first in Cain's murder of his brother Abel. It grew through the descendants of Cain until finally the world was so corrupt through man's rebellion, the overstepping of demonic powers into the realm of mankind, that God made his assessment of the kingdom. And here is his assessment. Genesis 6, look with me at verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so we have examined the original kingdom. We've examined the failed kingdom and now tonight, God will start over and we'll look at the cleansed kingdom. We come now to the great flood of Noah's day. Now, the flood stands as the greatest cultural memory in history. There are at least 270 ancient civilizations that have a flood legend or myth of some sort. These stories are embedded in the cultural memory of every major civilization because they all came from the same source. Noah and his family passed down through many, many generations the flood of Noah is certainly the most known Bible story of all time, and it's been colored by children by any, uh, more than any Bible story in history. They tend to leave out all of the people drowning around the ark, but we want to cleanse the kids' minds, I guess, of what Noah's ark was really about. But this account of the cleansing of the earthly kingdom is centered very much around the character and the attributes of God. And in fact, I want to organize our thoughts tonight around that idea I want to catalog our thinking around seven theological concepts concerning God. We'll let the story unfold with each of these concepts. But the first concept we want to examine is very simply the grace of God. The grace of God. The entire world deserved God's judgment. They had proven that sinful depravity is pervasive. No one has escaped. Everyone is depraved. Sin has reached into the DNA of every single human being. But God extended his grace. Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah found favor. He was granted grace. That's the Hebrew word that means grace. In verse 9 is the proof that grace has been extended. Noah is said to be righteous. This describes not only his covenantal relationship with God, but his behavior within that covenant, how he, how he shows that he's in covenant with God. He's not sinless, but the scripture says he was blameless. It's a word that means he was complete. He was intact. He was whole. He was without defect. He was honest. He had integrity and truth. All of those meanings are, are wrapped up in that idea of blamelessness. What this means is, is that his faith in the Lord was genuine. His behavior showed this. It was a true internal reality of faith. There was no religiosity on his part. There was no false religion. There was no fraudulent appear, appearance of religion. 
His love for the Lord was authentic and real. Hebrews eleven seventeen says that Noah believed God, quote, concerning events as yet unseen in reverend fear constructed an ark. The idea of reverent fear in Greek is, is caution and wariness because he believed God. He was afraid not to. He had a pious and a sincere and a genuine submissive spirit to the Lord who told him to do something that no one had ever done and that is build an ocean-going vessel in a world that didn't have oceans. And so he believed God. Noah's behavior proved his faith. His faith was given to him by the grace of God because God chose Noah. The old Armenian adage that God looked down the corridors of time to see who would choose him, that really falls apart because if that's the case, then mankind cut it really, really close with old Noah being the only believer on earth, apparently. But grace is the unmerited favor of God. And if it's unmerited, that means there's nothing we can do to earn favor, not even believe, not even have faith, because that would be earning God's favor. We have to be given grace first. And so unmerited favor of God must necessarily be out of sovereign grace, completely of God. Exodus thirty three nineteen. God told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I put it this way, God did not choose Noah because he was righteous and blameless. He chose Noah so that he could become righteous and blameless. God showed grace. There's a second concept concerning God, the holiness of God. The holiness of God, the basic idea of holiness is the set-apartness of God. This isn't just speaking of moral purity. Holiness doesn't just mean that God behaves himself. It's the idea that he is completely other, that there is God and there's everything else. He's totally separate. And throughout Scripture, humanity is called to be holy because God is holy. We're called to emulate him. We're called to be separate. One of the ways that God demonstrates his own holiness and his demand for holiness in his creation is to make what we call distinctions, to separate, according to his sovereign right to choose, some from others, to make these distinctions. Noah's sons would be the means by which God would repopulate the earth, that they would become important at the end of the flood narrative. Chapter 6, verse 10, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And we see this separation beginning now. In verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6, God passes judgment on the earth. Verse 12 says, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, literally ruined. It's beyond repair. It was filled with violence, verse 11. He saw the earth, and it was corrupt. How different from Genesis 1.31, where God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And now it's gone the other direction. So God informed Noah, verse 13, that he would make an end of all flesh. Now in verses 14 through 17, God tells Noah to make an ark because everything on earth is going to die. It was to be made of gopher wood. Nobody knows what gopher wood is. It's just the Hebrew word gopher. And so they just write gopher wood. When I was a little kid, I thought it was wood named after a little gopher. doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just a type of wood that we don't know But whatever it was, Noah knew what it was. And apparently it was a good building material. He was to build the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out to waterproof the the vessel. 
It was a complicated structure. It was to have three decks. It was to have a roof. It was to have various rooms, some sort of outside access like a window. Chapter 8, verse 6 says that Noah opened a window. It was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. No one is actually completely certain what a cubit is. It's generally believed to be the length from the tip of the hand to the end of the elbow. And the standard interpretation is about 18 inches, and that's probably pretty close. Meaning then that the ark would be at least 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. In the days of ancient Egypt, the longest sailing vessels on earth were 170 feet long meaning this is nearly three times longer than anything that's ever been built. And those ancient vessels didn't have complex levels, didn't have rooms, didn't have decks. It was basically a really, really glorified canoe. But the ark was totally different. Interestingly, though, some feel that rather than an 18-inch cubit, there's pretty good evidence for a 20.4-inch cubit for being more accurate for construction. Based on that, the ark would be 510 feet long, exactly three times longer than the longest vessel in ancient Egypt, 85 feet wide and 50 feet tall. This would be bigger than any ocean-going vessel until the 1800s. The three decks and one and a half million cubic feet of space would be absolutely more than enough room to house, by some estimates, 50 to 100,000 animals along with food and supplies. It's funny to me that the flood legends that developed around the world as a result of just stories getting passed down over time and changing, other flood legends and myths in pagan cultures tend to describe this ark as a monstrous, unseaworthy vessel. And now with today's technology, we know that if it was built to those specifications, almost all of them would immediately sink. But only the Genesis flood account describes the perfect six-to-one length-to-width ratio that modern ocean-going vessels now use as a standard. Makes them very, very stable in the ocean. Now, it would take numerous decades to build the ark, as you can imagine. Chapter 6, verse 3 begins the 120-year countdown to the flood. The end of chapter 5 tells us that Noah was 500 years old when he began fathering his boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Chapter 7, verse 11 says Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So when God gave Noah instructions for the ark, his boys were old enough to have married already. So good estimates are that it took Noah and his sons about 50 to 75 years max to build the ark. Plenty of time. In chapter 6, verses 18 through 21, God made Noah a promise. I will establish my covenant with you. Noah is to come to the ark with specific invited passengers, his wife, three sons, and three daughters-in-law. That's it. And two of every bird and two of every animal according to their kinds. Now, taking one of every kind of animal, chapter 6, verse 20, is not the same as taking one of every species of animal. In other words, there were probably only two dog kinds, if we want to put it that way. Not every species of dog in the DNA of the dogs would have contained all the possible permutations that we have today, just as in Adam and Eve, all the genetic variations we have today are contained. That's been proven over and over again scientifically is very, very possible. So taking every kind is completely plausible. Even the bigger kinds of animals could be brought on board as young, smaller animals quite easily. So sin has corrupted the world. But who's responsible? 
The clause at the end of verse 12 shows that mankind is responsible for our own sin, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Listen, Noah would be saved by God's grace. That is the means by which the elect are selected. But mankind would be wiped out because of their willful rebellion. That's the means by which the reprobate are selected. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everyone who drowned in the flood was fully deserving. Might I add, Noah and his family were fully deserving to drown as well. But God's grace was extended to them. So God is now making distinctions in reflection of his holiness. He's dividing some things as holy and other things as not. In chapter 7, God divides even the animals into the clean and the unclean. This doesn't have to do with dietary restrictions yet. This just has to do with, with God's distinctions. The clean animals are exceptional. Seven pairs of them are to be taken. They're, they're set apart by God. But they will be used for sacrifice unto the Lord after the flood, showing that what is clean belongs to God. What is holy is holy to him. That which is holy belongs to him. It's set apart. But more importantly, God is making the distinction between people, the elect and the non-elect. The elect are chosen by the means of God's grace. The non-elect are rejected by the means of their own sin. All completely righteous in his judgment. The elect and the non-elect begin together but then they are separated in judgment. Do we see this somewhere else in Scripture? Psalm 1 teaches that for those who have faith in the Lord, they are to be separated from the sinful influences of the world, and then they will be separated physically from the wicked of the world in, in the judgment. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And in verses 4 and 5, the wicked will be blown away like chaff in the judgment. If you're raising children or you're helping somebody raise children or you're giving advice to people who've raised, who are raising children, if you've been told that you should expose your kids to all the evils of the world so that they can stand up to it, that's the opposite of what Psalm 1 says. It's the exact opposite. As someone might say, well, I have freedom in Christ. And that's true. But are you using that freedom to pursue holiness? Taking all the freedoms you possibly can in Christ doesn't make you more holy. It just makes you more stupid because you're going down a road that can hurt you. The Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Is the thing I'm doing contributing to my holiness, to my set-apartness, to my uniqueness? Am I becoming more like God by doing this thing? Or am I playing the odds that it might not burn me? Am I fighting unnecessary battles for purity and righteousness because I want to dip my toe in the world and try it out? This is the concept of holiness. Because God is holy, because he's separate, he will only receive a separate, purified, holy people. God's holiness is manifested in his glorious works. His holiness is manifested in his law. It's manifested in his hatred of sin. It's manifested in his other determination to separate that which is holy from that which is not. 
And the holiness of God demands a response. It demands that we acknowledge that if God is holy, we are to be holy as well. Scripture says this multiple times. And how did Noah respond to the holiness of God? Chapter 6, verse 22, into the chapter, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He was obedient because God is holy. There's a third concept concerning God, the power of God. The power of God in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, by the gracious choice of God, God allows Noah and his family entrance into the ark. He commanded Noah to bring seven pairs of clean animals and birds, male and female. He's already given the general command of giving one pair of all the animals. And now the clock starts ticking. Chapter 7, verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Blot out, it's a word to mean to annihilate, to wipe clean. It is total, it's 100%. Again, we see the evidence of Noah's salvation. Verse five, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And in verses six through nine in your Bible is probably put together as one paragraph. It gives a, a general record that Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark when Noah was 600 years old. God has decided to wipe out his creation and he tells his method of choice now he will flood the earth. And just so that we're clear here, the, the, the flood is not some cosmic accident or a natural phenomenon. It is a heavenly determination of a supernatural event by which all powerful God who created and owns all things will do with his stuff as he pleases. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This is the Lord's prerogative to use his power in whatever way he chooses, in all the ways that bring him glory. One of those ways, 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. It is his prerogative. We cannot sit in judgment over God because he made us. Now, to try to think about God without including his omnipotent, all-powerful nature is really to reduce God to insignificance. And, And I think that the church suffers from this at times. But it's the power of God which executes the divine will of God. It's the power of God which reflects accurately the incomprehensible nature of God. And it's the power of God which confirms the other authority of God to do that which he pleases. No one can question his will. No one can question his nature. No one can question his authority since they're all proven by his power. If he says something's going to happen, it always happens. Daniel 4 verse 35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? To question God is to challenge him to demonstrate his power. The Bible gives some amazing word pictures of God's limitless power. Job 9 verse 8 says that God alone, quote, stretched out the heavens, unquote. It's the idea of spreading out a cloth. God made the universe, the galaxies, the stars, the planets with the ease of throwing a tablecloth onto a table. The same verse of Job 9 says that, quote, he trampled the waves of the sea. Trampled means to tread down or to bend or to manipulate in some way. This is speaking of the creative power of God, not only to make water, but to put it where he wants. 
By the way, Jesus trampled the waves of the sea in proof that he is God. Did it on a regular basis. He walked on water as easily as on dry ground. Job 22, verse 14 says that God, quote, walks on the vault of heaven. Vault is a Hebrew word that literally means the circle of heaven. This pictures the earth as being surrounded by the circle of heaven and God walking around over the earth. By the way, ancient Hebrews picture the earth as round, just so you know. Psalm 104, verse 3 says that God, quote, lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. This pictures God as building his house upon the waters that are above, that the palace of God is built such that it essentially rests on the sky. The same verse, Psalm 104, says he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. This is the idea of his total domination of creation, that he does what he pleases with that which he has made. And in his power, God is going to demonstrate his total omnipotence in the flood. But this isn't just a demonstration of power for its own sake, although that would glorify God as well. This is a demonstration of power because of the fourth concept concerning God, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And true to his word, God brings the flood. Chapter 7, verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And so you have the, the fountains of the deep, all the, the cavernous uh, waters bursting forth through volcanic activity. You have all the waters above coming down. It's a momentous day, so the exact date is noted here, the 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day of the month. We don't know exactly what day that is because over the course of history, the Hebrews used two different calendar systems. doesn't make any difference. The point is, is that this is an historic event. It happened on a specific day. Verses 13 through 16 give the account once again of Noah's family and the animals entering the ark. Interesting little side note here. Chapter 7, verse 4, God starts the countdown. In seven days, the rain starts. In verse 7, Noah and his family are said to enter the ark. Verse 10, and after seven days, the waters came. But verse 12 says that the rain came. And verse 13, on the very same day, Noah entered the ark. So did they enter the ark seven days before or the day that the rains came? Well, yes. And there's two reasons for this. Both are very logical. The first one is it would take more than one day to load all the animals and all the supplies that had been compiled onto the ark. They had to be compiled into the ark, rather. It seems that the seven-day warning is the heavenly all aboard. And the day that the rain came, the final boarding now takes place. But the second reason, a little bit more conjectural, but I, I think it, it bears thinking about. In the genealogy of Seth, the chosen line of Adam, in chapter 5, Methuselah, is famous for being the longest living man in human history, 969 years. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. Methuselah outlived his son Lamech, who was Noah's father, by about five years. And if you carefully calculate this genealogy, you'll find that Methuselah died in the year of the flood. He was the last living member of the line of Noah, a line of Seth, rather. Methuselah cannot have died in the flood since he's specifically listed 
in the line of those who called upon the name of the Lord. So the flood would not have come until Methuselah died. In fact, it may be that he helped Noah build the ark. Shem, Ham, and Japheth have their great-grandfather. They have him around during the decades of the ark construction. Um, Some scholars feel that Methuselah's name actually means when he dies, judgment comes. And that's how Noah knew that it was time. Many scholars also feel that the seven-day period when the boarding of the ark started also included a typical week of mourning for the death of Methuselah, the last man to die a natural death before the judgment of God would come. So grace has been offered to the world. The ark has been around for everyone to see in the sight of all for decades. Second Peter 2 verse 5 calls Noah a herald that is a preacher of righteousness. Noah's neighbors knew why Noah was building the ark because he told them. He told them repeatedly. I mean, Noah's ministry goes down in history as, from a human standpoint, the most unsuccessful preaching ministry in history. He preached for decade after decade after decade and no one was convinced except the seven that God already said were already convinced. But now the opportunity for grace has ended on the earth and the end of verse 16 is a chilling phrase and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Everyone else got up that morning like any other day doing all that they could to mitigate and numb the effects of living in the cursed world, as Jesus said in the New Testament, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, trying to party their way through life. But then the rain started, and it didn't stop for 40 days. Chapter 7, verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The flood will be a reversal of creation. Genesis 1, 6, and 7 tells us of the separation of the waters above and the waters below. There are waters of some kind in the expanse of the heavens, and there were waters on the earth, not nearly to the extent that we have now. There are subterranean waters, but those distinctions now are going to be obliterated. It's all just big one big watery mess. The extent of the flood is made clear in verses 18 through 24. The waters prevailed. They increased greatly on the earth. All the high mountains are covered. Incidentally, almost all of those high mountains are formed during the flood by volcanic activity. Chapter 8, verse 9 says, The waters were on the face of the whole earth. All the flesh died, birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures, all mankind. The emphasis in this section of verses 18 through 24 is clear. Four times, the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed. And four times we get a description of the death of all things on earth. In chapter 7, verse 24, into the chapter, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This was not a regional flood. This was a worldwide flood. There's both external and internal evidence for this. External evidence is interesting. It's not Supernatural, but it is interesting. The evidence for a worldwide flood is overwhelming. Fossils of sea creatures far above sea level have been found all over the world. They found millions of fossilized shellfish in the Himalayas. We see the rapid burial of plants and animals all over the world. Sediment has been transported incredible distances. It's been proven that the chalk beds of England, more commonly known as the White Cliffs of Dover, are exactly the same substance that can be traced across Europe, in the Middle East, and the Midwest of the United States, and Western Australia. It's the same stuff. 
and it's just transported by water all over the place. That's the external evidence, but the best evidence is internal. We might call it bibliological and theological. It's very simple. The bibliological evidence is that the Bible says so. I don't think the Bible could be any clearer that this is a worldwide flood. The theological evidence is that the wrath of God is never partial. Jesus didn't get up on the cross and suffer for a few hours and then say, uncle, I think I'm done. He went all the way to death. Sodom didn't just have part of the city catch on fire for a couple of hours. It was devastated. The wrath of God is always complete. It is always comprehensive. It is always total. And anyone who would say, well, the flood must have just been regional, doesn't understand the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his eternal and infinite hatred and loathing of all unrighteousness. It's divine indignation about all that's not as holy as he is. It's his pure anger against all that rebels against his authority, all that violates his sovereign will, his sovereign law. It's the intent to demonstrate his might and his majesty to those who would reject his might and his majesty. It's one of the perfections of God. It's not the dark side of God. It is just as bright and brilliant and amazing and good as all the other attributes of God because he is holy and therefore he is wrathful against unholiness. Hebrews 12 says that God is a consuming fire. This is not partial. This is not halfway His wrath is the means by which he executes his justice against all who have hated him. If you've heard the common phrase, God hates the sin but not the sinner, could I say this? That's a lie formed in the very fires of hell meant to soften God and fool people into complacency. Psalm Psalm 11 verse 5 says, His soul hates the wicked. The Hebrew word for hates is hates. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Can I put it this way? If the Christian can rightly say from 1 John four nineteen, We love because he first loved us. The wrath of God says to mankind, I hate because you first hated me. It's the mirror image opposite. Psalm 68, verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Never picture that there is somehow the innocent reprobate who wishes they could have been saved. They hate God. And therefore, they have earned his wrath. But there is hope for the lost, for the one who would acknowledge that God's wrath is rightly aimed at him. Our fifth concept about God, as you could expect, is the love of God. The love of God. And now we come to the literary centerpiece of the flood story. The whole point of the flood story, chapter 8, verse 1. If you're one who marks your Bibles, this is the center of the story. But, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. God has lovingly acted on his previous commitment. He remembered Noah. What that means theologically is that he did what he said he was going to do. Noah has built the first ocean-going vessel in history. 
And aside from the human side of hoping that he didn't leave a hole in it somewhere, he's trusting that God gave him accurate instructions. God gave him an accurate assessment of what's going to happen. And God has accurately promised that he's going to live. That he has done what he said he's going to do. Creation is now restored, although in a more fallen form. Human lifespans are going to begin to fall off quickly. And by the way, remember that Genesis is given originally to the Israelites on the plains of Moab as they're getting ready to enter into Israel in conquest. This would be very instructive to them to remind them throughout history that any judgment in Israel's history will culminate in God saving a remnant who will remain faithful to his national promises to them. This would be helpful to them. Verses 2 through 5 of chapter 8 describes the, the abatement of the floodwaters until the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, likely in eastern Turkey. Not Mount Ararat, but the mountains in the area of Ararat. And now in verses 6 through 12, we have one of the most remembered pictures of Noah's ark, probably one of the most colored pictures, the sending out of the birds. Noah sends out a raven and then a dove. He's using the birds to determine if the land is ready to be inhabited. A raven instinctively lives by scavenging dead animals. And so if the raven has found food, it means now that dead bodies are showing and and the floodwaters have gone down to a certain degree. The dove has limited flight time and requires plants for food. And it finds a, a little olive branch and brings it back. Olive trees are very hard to kill, by the way. Even if you cut one down, they just come back. And so the olive trees have now had time to leaf out again. There's a new life and new fertility on the earth. And finally, chapter 8, verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And so now verses 17 through 19 chronicle the exit from the ark. Chapter 8, verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. How wonderful that day must have been to finally step onto dry ground. I imagine Noah's wife was probably the happiest of all of them. They'd been on the ark for 370 days just over a full year. But now it's a very different world. The climate's different. The earth would take some time, in fact, to adjust to the new conditions. And one of the major consequences of the flood was the ice age, which happened right after the flood. The oceans would be very, very warm from massive volcanic activity when the fountains of the earth burst open. The land would be very, very cool, meaning you would get lots and lots of evaporation and lots and lots of snow And so massive ice buildup is said to have occurred on about one-third of the earth. We do not believe in, in multiple ice ages, but there was one ice age. Large sheets of ice and glaciers, most notably to the north and to the south. The best evidence is that this lasted for several hundred years. Now, an ice age would mean that ocean levels are significantly lower than they are right now, meaning not only could animals and people migrate on the ice but they could use land bridges which were exposed for example the Bering Strait is a land bridge between Russia and Alaska but now it's underwater and as the ice melted the ocean levels rose once again and and leaving us with with places that we now wonder how animals and people got there but we know how they got there 
Some have put forward the idea of rafting as well. That's been proposed. Rafting is the idea that billions of trees floating on the water from the flood were jammed together into basically huge floating islands, which animals may have been on, and ocean currents would take them to different places on earth. And people used to say, well, that's a ridiculous concept, and it sounds weird. In 1980, when Mount Helens erupted, about a million trees were blown out of their roots right near Spirit Lake, and they settled onto the lake into an enormous intertwined floating island, a raft. So we have the different kinds of animals in different parts of the world. But what we cherish here in this section more than anything is the idea of chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And when the waters of death become untenable for you, and when you are surrounded, and when you are at that moment, when you are taking your last breath and your last heartbeat, and you're clinging to the ark of the cross of Christ, you need to know that God will remember you, that the instrument of salvation will be sufficient, that as the ark was sufficient, so the cross is sufficient. Listen, this has been the pattern throughout the Bible that God in his love keeps his elect from his wrath. Lot and his daughters were delivered from God's wrath out of Sodom. Rahab and Jericho was delivered from God's wrath 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, We wait for his son from heaven, from whom he, raised, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come because the wrath of God was poured onto him instead of onto us. This is why we are pre-tribulational in our rapture thinking because God never makes Christians go through wrath. And that's different than persecution. There is no more, no more wrath of God for you. Why? Because it's all been extinguished on Christ. It's all been placed on him. But how can we really know? How can we trust the love of God in that moment of utter helplessness when eternity lies before us? Well, the way we know is the sixth concept about God, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. God was pleased at the sacrifice because it was offered in true faith. And by the way, it says some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird. This is a massive sacrifice. This is a huge sacrifice. God is pleased with the sacrifice because it was offered in true faith. And so he makes a promise. He makes a covenant with Noah Verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The whole burnt offering represented Noah's total surrender to God, his dependence on the Lord, It represented his acknowledgement that sin requires a sacrifice. In fact, when it says in verse 20, then Noah built, this is a verb construction that says the very next thing Noah did. He got off the ark and he built the altar. 
There's an anticipation. There's a readying of himself. You have a sense here that he prepared the elements of worship. He had been ready to build the altar. He had readied the animals. He had prepared his heart for worship. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 21 says that God was pleased. He came with a prepared heart, a pure heart, a humble heart. This wasn't rolling out of bed 15 minutes before church and dragging yourself half-heartedly to worship. We could learn much from how Noah prepared to worship God. And I don't think he brought a coffee with him to sit and enjoy an entertaining experience. Now, Noah, representing the remnant of mankind, is painfully aware of their powerlessness. And for the moment, human dependence upon God is fully restored. And God guaranteed to maintain the stability of nature. In verse 22, the earth will continue until Revelation 6 when God begins using other means to send calamity to the earth. But this covenant isn't just about no more floods. God shows that his original plan is still on track. Chapter 9, verse 1 and chapter 9, verse 7. God tells Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And the reason for the the importance of the promise of no more floods and that the earth will be maintained, that no global warming is going to destroy the earth. That's not going to happen. The reason for this is that the world will remain physically intact as the stage for God's plan to unfold. Every time you see clouds, you don't have to be afraid. Every time the temperature goes up by 0.0001 degree, you don't have to think that the the earth is getting fried. Noah is clearly presented here as the second Adam. He is the image bearer who is to populate the earth. The same command given to Adam in Genesis 1.28. But there's an element that's missing here. It won't be the same for a long time. God gave the same purpose to mankind given in Genesis, but minus having perfect dominion, now other things have to happen for the time being. In chapter 9, verses 2 through 6, instead of harmony between mankind amongst each other and instead of harmony between mankind and animals because of sin, now there's enmity. Now the animals will fear man. And this is partly for our protection. By the way, in the Great Tribulation, the book of Revelation says that that fear will be removed and animals will start tearing people apart. This fear of man in the animal kingdom didn't exist in the pre-cursed world. And by the way, it won't exist in the millennial kingdom either. Isaiah 11 tells us this, picturing the lion laying down with the lamb and little children leading them. And now, because of the enmity between humanity amongst itself, God would institute human government. Chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Human government is the means by which capital punishment is now mandated. Not only is human government decreed, but now we see the reason for it. It's to manage and punish sin in the nations. This is government existing to mitigate against total anarchy and total chaos, to punish the evildoer, as Romans 13 says. If you've ever heard the ridiculous phrase, you can't legislate morality, actually, that's the whole point of government is to legislate the morality of God, to enforce the morality of God, to kill the evildoer and protect the innocent. By the way, if you understand what the Bible says about government, it makes it really easy to form policy because then you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to kill the evildoer and protect the innocent. And if it falls under one of those two categories, the government's doing the right thing. But to give Noah comfort regarding his faithfulness, God reiterates 
chapter 9, verse 11. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. All through the Bible, God uses signs for each of his covenants to let us know that he's remembering his commitment. Most of them are listed in scripture, the Noahic covenant here, the rainbow, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of circumcision, the Israelite or the Mosaic covenant, the Sabbath, and the new covenant, of course, we experienced this this morning, is the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And so he gives us signs to remind us that he's keeping his end of the bargain. Verse 13, he says, I have set my bow in the cloud. The word for bow is the same word always used in the Old Testament for a battle bow, like a bow and arrows, the instrument of war. God even characterizes his judgment as the use of a bow and arrow. Psalm 7 verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. And like a warrior who has already extinguished his wrath on his enemies and has hung his bow on the wall, God, having extinguished his wrath on the earth, has hung his battle bow in the sky to say, I'm not firing arrows anymore. My wrath has been extinguished. In fact, in the coming kingdom... As we saw this morning, the colors of the rainbow are a huge theme in the throne room of God in the New Jerusalem because it reminds us of God's perpetual peace with his people. God is faithful. He is faithful. And it's a good thing because the flood was only a temporary solution. The rainbow in the sky reminds us that God will never again flood the earth with waters. It doesn't say that his wrath is done we have to rely very, very heavily on the seventh concept about God. The seventh concept about God is the decree of God. The decree of God. The decree of God is, as Ephesians 1.11 says, that God works events according to the counsel of his will. And we can identify some aspects of his decree. God's decrees are eternal. Once they're made, they always stand. God never changes his mind on anything. The decrees of God are perfect. Psalm 104 verse 24 says that God's works are multifaceted in their wisdom. They're they're so filled with depth of wisdom that we can't comprehend them. Romans 11 says this as well. God's decrees are eternal. They're perfect. God's decrees are third, independent. He didn't ask anyone's opinions. He didn't form a focus group and say, Michael and Gabriel, what, what do you guys think here? What do you think we ought to do? Isaiah 40, verse 14, asks rhetorically about God, whom did he consult and who made him understand? And the decrees of God are absolute. They're absolute. Isaiah 46, 10 says that God declares, quote, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And one of these decrees 
is the glorious promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a savior to crush evil, a man who would crush Satan. And this eternal, this perfect, this independent, this absolute decree of God is the very lifeline that humanity now hangs on. We're hanging by that decree. We're hanging by that thread because the flood was only a temporary solution to sin on the earth. The curse is going to continue. The flood didn't eradicate the nature of mankind because Noah and his family brought the curse with them. They brought it with them. Look with me at Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now, this section here isn't just concerned with Noah's immediate family. It's now concerning vast movements of ancient peoples. The people of the whole earth would come from these sons. And Noah planted a vineyard. And with the wine he produced, he gets ridiculously falling down drunk, laying uncovered in his tent. What an opportunity Noah had. He had the opportunity to begin an ideal society. He could have after sacrificing to the Lord, sat down with his sons, with his daughters-in-law, with his wife, and said, let's make the laws of the land. Number one, no public drunkenness. Now we're a few years after the flood. He has a fully functioning vineyard. He relaxes, and for the moment, he acts like one of the descendants of Cain, using God's provision to numb the effects of the curse, seeking to escape purely for his own pleasure. He's the master of the earth. He is the current king of the world. And he's a drunk. The abuse of the wine highlighted all the trappings of sin and depravity, self-indulgence, self-exposure, self-anything. And Noah shows that blameless does not mean sinless. And the son mocks him, not honoring his father. Verse 22 in Ham The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth Japheth, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Ham emphasized twice here as the father of Canaan, the Canaanite peoples, says he saw the nakedness of his father and he went and he told his brothers who acted honorably then, What was Ham's offense exactly? Well, we don't know exactly, but verse 24 says that Noah discovered what Ham had done to him. All kinds of theories exist as to what Ham may have done. We don't know for certain, but probably just the humiliation of his father was at the top of the list. But I'll give you another idea in a moment. But it's important for us to understand that that nakedness from the outset of sin, all the way from the time that, that Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they hid themselves This was considered part and parcel of sinful vulnerability, of helplessness. In the ancient world, the the modesty and the discretion that's called for is something that we don't really grasp in our modern society. The normal clothes we wear in that world would be almost like considered we're walking around in our underwear. The immodesty and the lack of covering. Nakedness spoke of being unprotected, of being humiliated, of being exploited. And yes, Noah brought this on himself But two of his sons acted honorably and one did not. 
Verse 23 says that Shem and Japheth took a garment and covered their father, walking backwards to avoid humiliating Noah. But the Hebrew text says that they took, uh, with a definite article, the garment. It seems that Noah was at least partially covered with a garment. It's a specific word that just means a large blanket or cloak. Why is it important that they took the garment? Because it seems that Ham helped along the humiliation of his father by taking the garment that was partially covering him and bringing it to his brothers to say, see, our father is a drunk and he's naked. And instead of helping his father, instead of covering him, he actively humiliated him. And so Noah gives a prophetic oracle. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. It begins with a curse. Cursed be Canaan. This is the fourth son of Ham. And by the way, this will help give Israel a context for the fact that they would be the judging hand of God against the Canaanite peoples. Noah pronounced an oracle of cursing and God fulfilled it. Now the question might arise, is it right to curse a people for the actions of another? Well, we're all cursed for the actions of another, for the actions of Adam. But we've also acted like Adam. We've rebelled just like him. And the Canaanite peoples would act like their father Ham. The Canaanites represented the corrupting influence that would plague Israel since they weren't fully taken out at the conquest. God warned his people of the wickedness of the Canaanites in Leviticus 18, 2 through 6. And after that warning follows this long list of the horrific practices of the Canaanites, Leviticus 18, 7 through 23. And what's important is that in that list, the exact same term nakedness is used 24 times. It's used as a euphemism for all the unmentionable practices that they engaged in, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, and homosexuality. Because God intends to wipe out a people who abhor the boundaries of marriage, who go outside the sexual boundaries of marriage, and who murder their own children wholesale. Does that sound familiar? This was a people completely enslaved to sexual sin. And for them, by the way, sexual freedom was more important than the children produced by human sexuality. So curse is pronounced. And then there's a blessing. The blessing on Shem is unique. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. This is a blessing on God. Shem would be blessed because the Lord is his God. And this is pointed as well to Shem's descendants, ultimately expressed in Israel and most ultimately expressed in Christ. The curse on Canaan, the blessing on Shem would be realized at the time of conquest. In other words, this curse and this blessing is going to come true right when Moses is reading this to his people. This is the time this is happening. And so the curse on mankind continues, and this is best illustrated by the end of the chapter. Verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years once again, and he died. But God has already made a decree 
that the Savior from sin and death is coming. He's on his way. God's kingdom plan is still the same. The central directive, as we've called it in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, for mankind to rule the earth as God's under-shepherd. This is still in play. This is still going. There will be a day when the decree of God is fully realized. We read this verse this morning, Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. Listen, the ark had two purposes. The ark kept the righteous in, and the ark kept the unrighteous out. What a dawning realization that the people of earth must have had as their last sight was the ark of God floating away from them, and as they drowned by the thousands, they would be called to account before the God they had rejected. Now, the first time God cleansed his kingdom, he did it with water. The second time God cleanses his kingdom, it will be with fire. When God once again uncreates and recreates, and this time all those who cling to the ark of the cross will emerge on a new earth that's now sinless and pure and holy. Not a worse version of creation, but the perfected version of creation. So Noah and his ark stands as hope for those who would have faith in the Lord and receive his grace, and it stands as severe warning to those that would stay outside the cross, stay outside the ark. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this this amazing narrative, this story, the absolute historicity of it, the impeccable accuracy, the fact that it's a story that can be understood by a three-year-old child, and yet is profound to the depths of its theology to teach us all of these magnificent qualities that you possess. It truly is a display of the eternal, infinite, inerrant, infallible nature of your word. Lord, we thank you that someday those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we will meet Noah, we'll meet his wife, we'll meet his family, who were saved by grace, who received the favor of the Lord just as we have. And Lord, we are thankful that we have an ark as well, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. We have a Savior who has led us to the only safe place around the waters of your wrath to keep us above the wrath of God, separated from the unholy. And by a miracle that we cannot possibly fathom, you have made us the unholy into those who are sanctified holy. We thank you and we praise you Might we be worthy of your love as we seek to serve you and to love you in remembrance and in thankfulness for your grace and your kindness to us. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.